If you're visiting with us this morning, we are currently studying through the book of First Peter verse by verse, chapter by chapter as we make our way book by book through the entire New Testament, thoroughly enjoying ourselves and recognizing that because it's God's word, we could never fully mine all of the riches that's there. Uh, but we, we do get to cover a lot. By the way, this uh, coming Wednesday, as was announced, uh, when, as I share with the women regarding some practical tips for evangelism, I'm very outnumbered. I recognize that uh, and a little intimidated, uh, but I know they'll be gracious with me, but uh, I'm very excited about it. So if maybe you're not able to go to the women's study on a regular basis or whatever, that's totally fine. But uh, really praying that the Lord will um, speak through his word in a way that would be very easy to understand and practical tips that take away a lot of the anxiety. As I've mentioned before, God doesn't stop being gracious just because he's dealing with us on the subject of evangelism. He's still gracious, he's still patient, but he's still working to help equip us so that we can uh, be able to share the gospel and obey the, the Great Commission. So I'm very excited about that. Infomercial is now complete. <laughs> verse Peter chapter 3, let's begin in verse 8. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips uh, from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype, which now saves us, Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your word, and we're grateful that uh, as we turn to it, you're always uh, ready to teach us anything that we need, Lord. And so we surrender our hearts. We yield our hearts to you as your people. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would be made more like Jesus 
because of these verses today. Thank you that your spirit can make application as only he can. And so, Lord, we don't want to deceive ourselves by being hearers only. We want to be doers of your word. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know how to do that in a way that's pleasing to you, that represents obedience to you. We commit this time to you for your holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We've been talking about great persecution that these uh, Jewish believers have been experiencing, which is the occasion that uh, Peter is addressing or or using as as a means by which to help them understand who they are in Christ, to be able to give them an eternal perspective in the midst of suffering and trials, and also to help them understand that practical holiness is very important to God, even in the context of suffering. He doesn't lower the bar of holiness because we're going through persecution or difficulty or suffering. In fact, he makes a very strong case, as we've seen, as we've gone through the book, that uh, if there's any time that's critical for, to walking in practical holiness, it's when we're going through difficulty. Holiness is its own reward, but holiness is also its own protection for us. And so we've been seeing that. Now, in all of those things, he's been revealing by the Spirit that the key to so much of this, as we've been looking at the last few verses in chapter 2 and into chapter 3, is this theme of submission. That submission is a very, uh, very potent way to express our practical holiness, a very way to represent the Lord Jesus in this world. So we saw him say in last, the last chapter that we're to submit ourselves to government authorities. He also spoke to uh, slaves needing to be submitted to their masters. Of course, there were 40 million uh, slaves at this time in the Roman Empire. And so for our application, it would be more towards employers and employees, that every employee needs to be in submission to their employer. And, and then we saw last week him speak about submit, submission in the context of in the marital relationship. And so there's a proper place for submission. Obviously, we need to be submitting to one another in that marriage relationship. But there's also roles for women, roles for the, 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 the husband, and so, to, so to speak. And so all of that reflects practical holiness. And all of it is unbelievers are watching. Because remember, he talked about as we let our light shine before men, so to speak, that it'll shut their mouths in a way where they slander us, they come against us, and so forth. And he says, supremely, allow your, your actions to, to do the talking, to do the convincing. And he even carried it into the marital relationship, as we saw last week, with, with the woman that has the unbelieving husband, or at least maybe a husband that's in willful disobedience to God's word. That God puts that premium on our actions and letting that that witness come forth with our behavior instead of just talking all the time because you know we need to preach the gospel we need to say God's word we need to to represent the Lord and so forth with with our speech of course but so often he uses our actions and the things that we are engaged in related to being a good witness for people uh, in our with with our with our practice or our practical holiness, it makes a difference. When we're different in this world, when we act in ways that are completely contrary to the way this world functions, people take notice. And so he encouraged us in those things, and, and he's going to continue it today. And another theme of, or another aspect or facet or nuance to the subject of submission, and that is submitting to one another in the body of Christ. 
and also submitting to what God says to do related to unbelievers with not reacting negatively to how they mistreat us at times. That's still fully in the context of, of submission. But in addition to that, Peter, we will see him speak again uh, of letting our actions uh, do the preaching again, be the, or the fruit of the Spirit being our little evangelist on our behalf, uh, making a difference in, in people's lives. And, and so that's what we need to see. And then our ultimate example, as he's going to get to, is how Christ was our ultimate example of that. And that uh, if God can use man's wicked plans for good related to the cross, which he did, then surely he can and does use what wicked man does to us for his good in our lives as well. If there's any place that it was important for God to work all things together for good, it was that cross. I mean, obviously, the, the, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. God knew that, that from eternity past that that would be necessary. But in terms of how man saw things, man was doing things, you know, wicked man was doing things to, uh, you know, that situation and to him and so forth, and, you know, that, that God redeemed and, and made into a beautiful uh, expression of his love towards us. And, and it's the same for all of our lives. I mean, we know that ultimately all of our sins put Jesus on that cross. We know that we can't point to any group of people in that. But God used that. So he begins in verse 8. Notice he begins with the word finally there. And this is encouraging to any preacher because he's, he says finally, but he has chapters to go. So he he doesn't know how to end, just like a lot of pastors don't know how to start. You know, they're starting their descent, you know, as I close. And then you're like, wait a minute, there's 20 minutes to go here. So it's encouraging to me. He says, finally, but it's, he's not done yet. All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Now, we wouldn't have to say these things if we automatically did these things, right? He has to encourage us to do these things. Because our natural tendency in our sinful nature is to not be of one mind, to be divided, to focus on our differences instead of what we have in common, which is very significant. And so he's called us to be in unity with other believers. And we usually think of, okay, unity in the sense of those that are in our immediate church family, but it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that to the whole body of Christ. Pastor Chuck is always, has always quoted G. Campbell Morgan, the great Bible commentator, when he's talking about you know, uh, divisions and so forth in the body. And he, and he quotes G. Campbell Morgan as saying, the more spiritual a person is, the less denominational they are. And it's so easy to focus on our differences and so forth, but there's so much that we have in common. So he says, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. So our, maybe our default setting is to not be compassionate. And he continues and says, love as brothers. That's the word love there is the word phileo. It means a, an affectionate, brotherly love. And it's easy to, to forget that we're primarily brothers and sisters, those of us that know the Lord in this room. We're not primarily churchgoers or congregants or how all the different words that describe people that are a part of a fellowship. We're primarily brothers and sisters. So he says, express that. Love is not just a concept. It's something that you demonstrate that. God showed us that, obviously, with Jesus. That, you know, God sent his only son, and he sacrificed his son for us. So he calls us to, to love as brothers and then to be tender-hearted. What's the opposite of that? Hard-hearted? To be very uh, non-compassionate and, and not uh, 
have you know mercy with those that need mercy or not not uh, stand with people when they're going through difficult times not try to help them it's easy just to have a calloused hard heart and God isn't like that towards his people and so he wants us to be like him he is tender-hearted and to be courteous there at the end of verse 8 to be polite to be respectful it's sad to me because sometimes in the body of Christ because we're kind of, you know, in the same environment all the time. Sometimes we can lower our, um, you know, lower our, our expression of being polite and courteous to one another because we're so used to being around each other a lot. And, and God isn't aiming at that at all. He wants us to demonstrate that agape love towards each other and to be appropriate towards one another. Now, notice in verse 9, he tells us to act instead of react. He says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. It's been said, return evil for good is satanic, return evil for evil is human, and return good for evil is divine. And that's true. And, and God knows that to get people's attention, first of all, had to be like him, he, he doesn't return evil for evil. He's good, to, he's good to everybody. I mean, he judges. He's just, of course. He does what's appropriate. But he's not doing it to, to you know, hurt people or to you know, anything like that. He is compassionate and loving and so forth. So he wants his children to be that. But when you're being persecuted or you're being mistreated, it's very tempting to return evil for evil. To, be, to, to not be over... We're supposed to overcome evil with good, we're told. And it's easy to say things and do things in response when God reserves revenge for him. He said, I will repay. We can't personalize that and say, well, God said, I will repay. So I can return evil for, no, that's not what, he says, I, meaning himself, can, can, can get revenge and get even and so forth. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's something that should be at the forefront of our mind. Now, Peter had been engaged in some of these things and he was in prison and he was, there's different times where he was incarcerated there. We don't see him, you know, just saying insults to people and lashing out at people. He didn't, he didn't do that. Now, there was before he came to know Christ, it's a whole other thing, which we'll get to in a little bit. But that's what God's called us to do. And, and ultimately, the Lord Jesus spoke on this. And Jesus, or, uh, Peter rather heard this from the Lord Jesus himself say this in Luke chapter 6, verse 32. He said, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing, hoping? <laughs> Hoping, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Again, it's not natural to love our enemies. People will say, well, that's impossible. Nobody can do that in their own strength, right? That's completely correct. 
But God can give us the capacity and the love and the grace as we yield our hearts to him to give us the capacity to walk the extra mile, to give our coat to someone when someone needs something, to, you know, all these things that he said that work opposite of way this, the way this world functions. Only if God re- even sees it. It's not so, you know, obviously God uses that as he's been talking about doing good works before wicked men. But even if no one sees it, Jesus sees it when we do the opposite uh, related to when people do things in a wicked way to us. So it's not natural, but God can give us the grace. And I think for believers, even those that, of us that have walked with the Lord for some time, I think the biggest way that we can fall short when someone does something, it's not even regular persecution. They can cut us off in traffic or they can do something inconsiderate. I think the way that it manifests, we don't really start taking action and start getting people back and usually... Um, it's usually in the form of our mouths. It's usually in the, the things that we say. And we're, usually before we come to know the Lord, we're pretty good <laughs> at uh, putting people in their place. And, and, you know, putting people in their place really isn't anything that God's called us to be engaged in. He's called us to return blessing back, to speak positively of them, to, uh, and he gets into specifics here, to praise them, to give blessing and so forth. And it's difficult. We know that. We went through the book of James. We saw how dangerous the tongue is and how impossible it is, apart from the Lord, to tame our tongues. But so often when we're doing the right thing and people do things that aren't right, what they're going to notice the most or what we're going to be tempted to to expose is what's in our heart by what comes out of our mouth. So in that moment, when you're frustrated and you want to lash out, it's time to pray in your mind and in your heart at that moment. To say, Lord, give me the words to say. Give me patience. See, that's what going to God is and asking for that strength at that moment to obey what he says to do, to represent him well. And he'll give us the strength every single time. Now, he quotes Psalm 34, which is really a recipe for a long life and a good life. How many books are out there trying to give recipes for a good life and a long life? Well, God gives his counsel right here. And he says, for he who would love life and see good Days, let him refrain his tongue. Oh, we're talking about tongue again. His tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Again, this is in the context of reacting. God's called us to act appropriately, not react inappropriately. And when we're being persecuted or people are being, you know, expressing their sinful nature to us, it's very easy to lash out. And he says, that's not what I've called you to do. You've been called to something higher. Peter's already spoken to this in chapter 2. In uh, chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, he tells us this, as we saw a few weeks ago. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And so that's, that's our supreme example. Jesus did not revile back. He didn't try to get revenge and so forth. That's our example. And then he says in verse 11, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, one of the things I notice at the end of verse 11 is that I have to pursue those things. I have to pursue peace with other people. Usually it just doesn't come to me. (laughs) I have to seek it out and I have to pursue it. You know, being at peace with other people, whether they're believers or unbelievers, it takes work. 
It takes being, having an attention to detail and to be careful with what we say and careful with what we do. And so for that type of peace to be lived out through our lives, I have to pursue it. I have to seek out after it. I have to humble myself and recognize that God's called me to be patient and gracious with people and to not lash out in trying to hurt them and taking care of the situation on my own. Now, verse 12, he gets our attention on God here. He says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. See, that's who's really watching. It doesn't matter what other people think. You know, I mean, we want their assessment of us if they're not believers to see something different. We care about how they, you know, view God related to working in our lives, of course. But ultimately, it's what God sees what matters. He sees if, you know, our behavior and what we say, and it matters to him representing him. And so his eyes are on the righteous. And notice he says his ears are open to their prayers. We saw last week for the men not caring for their wives or not dwelling with them with understanding. He says that your prayers may not be hindered. See, here he's touching on that again. His ears are open to their prayers. That He hears us. When we do what's right, he hears us and answers those things. He's gracious with us. He's not forced to discipline us because we're in disobedience to his word. He's a good <laughs> discipliner. I don't know if that's a word or not. But he's very good at discipline. He can take us out to the the woodshed, so to speak, and and he can discipline us very, very good. But more than that, it's more of a discipleship uh, training type of discipline that he gives us. And and so he's faithful to do that. So he says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He doesn't want to have to discipline us. So Peter is saying, hey, these unbelievers that are persecuting you, yes, it's bad, it's painful what they're doing, but you don't want God disciplining you on top of what they're doing. Uh, in your life. It just compounds the problem. See, that's why he's stressing practical holiness so much in this book, is because when you're going through difficulty, we can compound the issue and the situation by not doing what's right, by getting back at people, by uh, insulting people, by returning evil for evil, and so forth. And he says, I don't want that. I don't want that to have, you know, have you be engaged in that. I want you to be freed up to represent me well. And so that's something that he keeps before us here. Then he asks a a rhetorical question in verse 13. He says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And the obvious answer is, is nobody. And this is talking in general terms here. Generally, people don't treat people badly who are known for doing good. If you're known for doing good, it's very unlikely that generally people are going to be uh, treating you poorly. And so he says, just let your actions speak for you. He's been keeping with this theme all the way through chapter 2 into chapter 3. Let your works be evident to all. Let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus uh, told us that. But then he says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So obviously in that moment when we're not, when we're getting persecuted or mistreated because of our faith, we're not feeling very blessed. You're like, God, you're saying I'm blessed, but I, you know, I'm not seeing that. I'm not sensing that. I'm not experiencing that. But ultimately what's important is how God assesses our situation. 
because we're representing him. Our feet are beautiful, carrying the, 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 the good news. And, and so he says, that's truly what this, the, the real situation is from my vantage point. That's all that matters is how God sees my situation. Peter knows what it's like to be threatened. He, he knows what it's like to, to be in a situation where he's feeling uh, threatened. You know, the most famous one is when the Lord Jesus is getting arrested and he takes his sword and he fights for Jesus as if Jesus needed his help. And he comes with that sword and he just lops off the, the servant of the high priest Malchus's ear. And then Jesus, okay, now I got to deal with this, goes down, picks up that ear and puts it back on his head and heals him. And so here, Peter was feeling very threatened at that, at that moment, but there was, another, there was another way that Jesus revealed. And, and, and so, we, but we see that in the book of Acts, because in, in Acts chapter 4, they were threatened, and they were threatened after they were, you know, doing good, and, and God was using them and doing a miracle through them and so forth. They were brought before the, ruling, the religious leaders, and they were threatened. And so they went back to pray, and this is what they said, Lord... Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they, it says where they were all filled with the Spirit and were given boldness there. So, so Peter knows what it's like to be threatened both before is surrendered to the Lord and after he surrendered and ultimately when he trusted in the Lord the Lord compensated for that because ultimately their threats don't really mean anything as far as God sees things and then we're told later in chapter four in this very book in fact the next chapter that we're in Peter tells us this in verse 14 he says if you are reproached for the name of Christ blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests Upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So that's God's perspective when we're persecuted, when we're mistreated, when people treat us badly because we're believers. And I know that in our culture, we're not persecuted, obviously, not even close to what they were persecuted in that time, and to many of our brothers and sisters around the world. But nevertheless, we can experience persecution in this life. And, and so he says, just trust God. Look to God. Look how big God is in the situation. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid of their threats. Because when you're persecuted, God's spirit of, the glory, spirit of glory rests upon you. Then he continues in verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So he says there's something that we should do in the context of persecution and hardship and so forth. He says, first of all, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does that word mean? Sanctified means to set apart. So he says, set God apart in your hearts, reverence him, worship him, keep him at the forefront of uh, everything that is going on in your life there in your heart. And he says, and in doing so, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you. Now, the word defense is the 
is the word from which we get our word uh, apologetics, and it means to defend something. So he says, always be ready. Notice the word ready there. That, that takes time. It takes effort to equip yourself to be able to give a reason for the hope that's in you. But one thing that's very important for us to see is that notice he says, everyone who asks you. Now, that was something I missed as a new believer. I was going around trying to equip myself to learn how to answer objections to the Christian faith. And I was engaged in evangelism and sharing my faith and so forth. And I was answering questions people weren't asking. Well, you know, did you hear about how ridiculous the theory of evolution is? I'm like, well, I didn't even bring that up, you know. Well, yeah, but what about that? Then I open up a can of worms for them to, 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 you know, take and use and so forth. And so I had to learn that the hard way. So what he's saying is live the kind of life that's different, that's Christ-like. That's what true holiness looks like. That's the supreme example of or definition of holiness is to live like Christ. And if I live like Christ, especially when people are mistreating me and I'm not getting even, And I'm not uh, sinning with my words in terms of slandering them, gossiping, or insulting them. And I'm not saying bad things back to them. It gets people's attention. And when it gets people's attention, they start seeing this person's different. And maybe you're at work or something and people notice people teasing you because you have a Bible on your desk or something. Or they know you're a Christian and they're teasing you. They're making fun of you. They're treating you poorly. Maybe you miss a promotion. Because you're a Christian and another co-worker sees that and they say there's something different about you and they start feeling like you're a safe person to start asking questions and the, or they say hey my my uh, my mom is going in for surgery for something could you pray for, you know quietly where no one's around to to see and so forth and they start seeing you as as different because you're living a different kind of life that this is speaking about. And then it brings the occasion for them to say, I want to know more about your God. I want to know about, more about your Jesus. What's the, what, what, what went into that decision? Tell me about it. Tell me your story. One of the things we always talk about a little bit at times when we're talking about equipping for evangelism is your testimony. It's powerful. That's why we aim to have people up here every month sharing their salvation testimony. It's powerful. Nobody can argue with it. I can't say, hey, that didn't happen to you. <laughs> yeah, it did happen to me. It's real. Jesus has really changed my life. So that's, that's included in all of this, of course. But there's also being equipped to be able to answer people's questions and so forth. And one of the things that holds us back in sharing our faith is we, we think, well, we don't know really what to say or how to answer. But that's how we learn. We just go out and obey the Great Commission with our lives just in general, with you know neighbors and so forth, or co-workers, or we just start representing the Lord, and then we start living differently. They ask questions, and then maybe we don't know the answer, and we go back and find it. It's okay to not have the answer. Just go back and, and find the answer. Tell them you'll be back, and, and there is an answer, but I just don't know it at the moment. That's okay. There's a lot of things they don't know at the moment. <laughs> that's why they're asking you, right? So that's, that's a real practical thing to, th- to, to consider. But he adds at the end of verse 15, there's a way in which we do that with meekness and fear. Did you see that? What is meekness? Meekness is power under control. The classic illustration is a horse that has that bit. And through that bit, that power, all the horsepower, I guess there's only one horsepower to a horse. That makes sense. One horsepower. 
But all that horsepower is controlled by that little bit. And, and we see that James used that as an example of, of the power of the tongue and how to control our tongue and so forth. So that meekness should be, we should share with, with that kind of restraint. Because we can bulldoze right over people in answering their questions. And, and we have to be sensitive and, and have care to, to, to what we're doing. And, and when he adds fear, it means that we have, we have reverence, we have respect for the Lord, and we think about uh, just, you know, if it weren't for the Lord, we would be in the same condition. That we can't have, you know, think that our place in their lives and their place to be able to share with them originates in anything in us. It's from God and all the things that he's blessed us with. And then he says, having a good conscience. Now, if you're returning evil for evil, you don't have that, do you? <laughs> it's hard to have a good conscience when you're getting even with everyone all the time. But that's what he's, he says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, again, that's false accusation, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And then he says, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. There's no virtue in suffering for doing evil. There's no virtue in it at all. I mean, God will still use it in our lives to discipline us and so forth and make us more like Christ. He works all things together for good, even our failures. But he says, if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing good. Now, verses 18 through 22, Peter puts our attention on Christ as our example with all of us. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, I want to stop there for a moment because that's very important. Jesus died once for sins. And so any teaching in any church, I don't care what church it is, that teaches that he died over and over again is false. He died once for sins. For the just, for the unjust. (laughs) That's us, the unjust. That he might bring us to God. That was God's plan, to reconcile us to himself. Notice, he doesn't bring himself to us. He brings us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So the part that died is Christ's body. He never died spiritually, never had a spiritual separation from God. He can't die spiritually. There wouldn't be any part of the second person of the Trinity alive still. You know, so obviously God remains alive in Christ when he died there, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, the word spirit in the Greek is not capitalized, which causes a little bit of controversy. Is it talking about the Holy Spirit or Christ's spirit? I think it's referring to the Holy Spirit, even though it's not capitalized, by the next two words, by whom, by the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. What in the world is he talking about here? Where do we start? What does this preach to the spirits in prison? You know, first of all, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of controversy related to this passage, and there's people that are respectable that have different views on this. So, But this is kind of the best I can do with it. In Genesis chapter 6, we're told that there were... um, There was a lot of wickedness going on. Of course, that's the time where he judged the world. God did uh, and flooded the earth because of the wickedness in this world. And we're told that there was um, the sons of God cohabitated with the sons of men. And there's there's debate about what the sons of God is there, those angelic angels or what. And I think it is talking about angelic uh, 
beings there, not necessarily uh, you know, taking on a physical form and having relations with women. It could have been that they, were, they, they possessed men, and through that they did uh, a lot of wickedness. But those, no matter how, what exactly how the, it took place, that I believe it clearly says that these wicked spirits that were engaged in that activity at the time uh, were punished. And Peter's going to get to this in the next book, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So he says in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he didn't spare the angels who sinned, and he cast them down to hell. And then in Jude chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord Jesus' half-brother Jude said, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So I believe those angels, those fallen angels, were punished and so forth. And so that's the best way I can come to grips with what it's revealing here in our passage. And you can write in the margin there Ephesians 4 if you want, because that's, I believe, a good uh, cross-reference for what happened here that, that, that Peter is talking about. Now, Peter, at one point, we're going to see, says the words of Paul are kind of hard to understand. Well, Peter's keeping up with him here with this passage. Uh, but in Ephesians 4, it talked about Christ descending into the lower parts of, of the earth after he died on the cross. Remember on the cross, he said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. He also said that uh, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in, in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So it's most people believe, or a lot of people believe, that when Jesus died, he went down into this compartment called Hades in in the center of the earth there in the spirit realm. It had two compartments. One compartment was Abraham's bosom where the Old Testament saints were there waiting for the Messiah, putting their faith in the Messiah. And the other compartment is the part of a holding tank, so to speak, until the great white throne judgment. So I believe that what he's talking about in our passage here is that when Christ went down there, as part of him being down there, not only did he preach in Abraham's bosom, him being the promised Messiah, but also proclaimed to those spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah, proclaimed, because the word preached is not the same word we use for preach the gospel, he's proclaiming victory there. And all of what they were engaged in and so forth, because the demonic realm was engaged in Christ uh, being put on the cross and so forth, he's proclaiming victory. But the bigger point related to what I believe he's saying to uh, these Jewish believers here was that God was victorious over the wicked plans uh, that, that were there for the Lord Jesus. God was victorious over that. And he proclaimed that victory there uh, to those demonic, um, those fallen angels there. So that's what I think he gets to there. And he, and he ties it together in verses 21 and 22. Because he says, there is also an antitype which sa- now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God 
angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So at the beginning of verse 21, he says there's also an anti-type. Now that, that Greek word was used to describe, you know, a lot of times a king had a stamp. And a lot of times it was in the, on his ring and he would put it in wax and so forth. And this, they would use this word anti-type to describe what was embossed or what, was, what received that image of that stamp there. And so the picture is there was a, there was a type or a picture of, of, in the Old Testament of what we get to experience as believers. He's, he's focusing on the ark. He's focusing on the flood in this world, I mean, of the world and so forth, and, and that those eight people were delivered through water. God delivered those people. There was the wickedness in this world that was going on. He delivered Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. He delivered them and he saved them through water. And it, and it pointed to, it pointed to something greater. And he's pointing the ark, kind of comparing that with Christ. Because in the sense that he's an ark, he's, he's the savior. We get inside, we become in Christ as believers. And then we're saved in the sense of being delivered from this world. Just like those eight people were delivered from the judgment of God when he flooded this whole world. And, and so that's, the, that's the, the type that he's talking about. Now, when he says baptism here, he makes it clear in the parentheses there that he's not talking about water baptism there. Because he says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. The word answer means like a formal, former commitment. A, like a, they would use it to describe someone that enters into a contract there. So a person would, would make this formal commitment as a believer to follow Christ because we're identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. We're told that we're, we have one baptism in the sense of we're baptized into Christ. The word baptism means immersion. So we positionally have been placed in Christ. That's a place of safety, just like that ark was a place of safety for those eight souls that God preserved. So he's saying that that ark pointed to another type of immersion, an immersion in Christ where we are saved. And that's why he says a good conscience toward God, because that's what he produces in our lives. So all of this really is to get their attention on how big God is and how God can redeem any situation for his purposes. If he can take this horrific experience that they're going through with persecution, then you know that will accomplish what he has for them as believers. And he points to Christ. Look at Christ. Look how amazing Christ's sacrifice was. Look how he used that for good. Look at how he took the, the plans of, of sinful man and used that for good in this world. Look how he used... Uh, or he took advantage of the situation back in Noah's day to deliver people, to point to something greater when we are baptized into Christ. And it's supposed to get them to get their focus on God and not our circumstances. And, and to realize that God is greater than all of man's wicked plans toward us. And he's going to take all those things and, make, and use them for good in our lives. And I want to ask you today, are you discouraged by what man is doing to you? Are you discouraged by... Uh, man's wicked plans in your life. God says, get your focus on me. Get your focus on how big I am. See, we're told in Romans that, that he, he conforms us into the image of Christ. He takes the good that he works by circumstances. You know, he works all things together for good. And then he defines what good is there in the next verse when he says that he uses that to conform us into Christ, in the image of him. So 
the big picture, and again, through this whole book we've seen, Peter, by the Spirit, take our attention on the big picture to help us to see what he's really trying to accomplish in our lives. That he's greater than our circumstances, and there's no circumstances that we find ourselves in where he's not uh, working that to make us more like Christ. So the wrong way to approach all these things that are happening to us and to them is to fight back, to do, to get even, to get revenge, to say, to lash out at people, to lash, lash out our words towards people, to try to hurt them in response to what he, they're doing for us. He says, don't do that. That doesn't look like me. That doesn't get people's attention. That doesn't look like a different kind of life that I can use to bring people to come to know me. So recognize that your actions, your words, your, your trust in, in God, all of those things have implications in this life and how you're a witness. So it's a good exhortation for us to take uh, to heart because people are watching our lives. They're coming to conclusions about God based on our lives and how we react and how we treat them. Even our kids, think about those of us that have children, how they, they watch us in very close quarters, how we react to things, and, and, it, and it points them one way or the other. It points them as an example to how we should act or, or an example how we shouldn't act. And so many of us have been bad examples, myself included at times, in reacting the wrong way when things happen, and they need to see a good example. So God's always working in our lives to bring us more like Christ so that we can be a great example in our homes, in our places of work, wherever we find ourselves in this world. He calls us to be a great example, and I'm trusting that these verses will be used by him in all of our lives to that end. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for the fact that you make us different. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the opportunity to be able to uh, be different in people's lives for your purposes, Lord. So I just pray you bring encouragement, Lord, to anyone that's here that's discouraged about where you have them and maybe, maybe they're being treated poorly right now by others. I just pray you give them strength and encouragement and grace, Lord, right now. Help them to see how big you are and how great you are. And you can use those things Uh, for your purposes in their lives. Help them to not get even with people. Help us all, Lord, to not get even or to speak evil uh, against somebody in response to what they're doing to us. Help us to turn the other cheek. Help us to to not be overcome with, with that evil, but to overcome that evil with good, Lord. We know it takes your power and your grace. We, we pray that you would remind us by your Holy Spirit to ask for those things in the moment to be able to respond appropriately. Lord. And we thank you for your victory, Jesus. We thank you that you just was so victorious on that cross and you were an example to us related to how we should suffer. Lord, we want to, we want to share in your sufferings. Lord, we know that coming closer to you that way is a blessing to you and to us. And so whatever it is you have for our lives, Lord, we yield to you now. Whatever it is, wherever you may lead us, Wherever, however you want to use us, wherever you place us in life, Lord, we yield our lives to you. Use us how you choose. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.